0: You are listening to the Cycling Podcast.
1: Hello, and joining you on February the 6th after a weekend when no sooner had Mathieu van der Poel claimed his sixth cycle across world title than he was questioning his own future in the discipline. Musing, I wonder if it's worth it to have beer poured over you in every race. A perfectly natural reaction, I would suggest, for someone born in the land that gave the world Heineken, Amstel and Grosch. My name is Daniel Freeber, and I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we will blow the froth off events from Tabor in Czechia, land of a higher grade of Pivo, of course, and wash that all down with everything else that's been brewing in the world of cycling in the last week from the Saudi desert to the barricaded and picketed farm roads of the Gare Departement in France. Joining me at the bar today, as he's often done in assorted hostelries in the past, it has to be said, is that discerning consumer of indigenous liquid refreshment, Brian Nygaard. Thank you.
2: Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well. I'm really well. Just when you mentioned the date, I was like, bloody hell, it is actually already, you know, moving fast towards the interesting part of the year. I don't like winter. I hate January. I don't particularly like December, but
1: it's like February. We're starting to get back into it again, aren't we? We're going to get cantankerous Nygaard today. And Brian, you're, you've been on the podcast so frequently now that your CV sort of precedes you, your reputation precedes you. It would be remiss of me not to remind the listeners every now and again that you were former press officer for various high-flying teams of yesteryear, CSC, Team Sky. You were a team manager, Leopard Trek, and so on and so on. And now you're a winemaker, art dealer, renaissance man podcaster hope, <laughs> I hope podcaster my wife so. doesn't
2: listen to this show
1: <laughs> she- <laughs> <laughs> talented Mr. Ripley kind of figure um also joining us is a man who uh, well I don't think overindulges um and I don't think he's ever infringed violated the the um the very strict now um what they call le anti the anti- drunkard law that's been passed or reinforced in Mallorca um, recently to combat what they call in turismo de exceso um, basically people going to Mallorca to drink a lot of alcohol I don't think you've ever infringed that um, Rob Hatch in spite of the fact that you reside in Mallorca in Soyer Rob, how are you doing? I wonder where we're going with that one. We've gone from Antique
3: dealer, and and then I had Lovejoy in me. He's from Accrington, did you know that? Instead of a talented Mr. Ripley. And then we've gone to that. Um, Well, yeah, uh, no, there's no danger of that. Thankfully, I'm on the other coast and uh, a little more tranquil. But like Brian, I am not a fan of winter, and I'm waiting for it to disappear rather quickly
1: you're both wearing gilets to podcast it's today, cold daniel it's um, made me it's made me slightly self-conscious i feel as though i didn't get some kind of memo and um, i don't own a gilet either so um, we, we talked about that uh, anyway. you
2: and i for doing some cycling podcast merchandising you know how the italian journalists our friends at tutubici who are our seniors in a lot of ways they do have like this, like this journalist attire <laughs> a like a vest shooting it's yeah, like a, a shooting for like a fish, jacket like a fishing you gear them. you know and, uh, I, you know, I'll just put it out there to the listeners. I think that will be a very valuable contribution to the Cycling Podcast universe, a journalist vest, like multi-usable.
1: Yeah, if you can imagine a sort of vest with as many pockets as a sort of Gianni Savio team's jersey has sponsors. <laughs> they have I like it even more now. For, pockets for they look they're pockets for cartridges i think they are kind of shooting vests why this became the sort of durigo uniform of italian journalists at the giro d'italia i don't know maybe that's a subject for a kilometer zero in the giro d'italia this year I'm and brian of course you'll be joining us at the giro um you will be well you'll be entering preparation mode as will i soon um looking forward to that brian looking forward that's to the Giro. very much so i'm very much so i um
2: I almost feel like I'm a am I'm, I'm sort of a stable part of the cycling podcast Giro coverage and it, it yeah it feels um I mean I I have to say, it's my favorite bike race really it's my favorite race to travel in with my favorite travel companion co-driver and um yeah the, the Giro Vagando has become a very important part of my my yearly circle
1: that and making Don't get wine. Too comfortable I'm, no I'm to Com- Don't me, get too comfortable Brian. We're, comfortable? We're, we're, you any want to one of us, <laughs> any one of us is only two bad podcasts from the sack. Um
2: duly, d- <laughs> d- noted, well they'll be quite empty in the car then, won't it?
1: Brian, Rob, it is that time of the week when we round up the week's news, it is the week uh, news roundup. Um, we may as well finish what we started in the intro of the episode and tell you about the Cycling Cross World Championships in. Rob, did we establish that it was Tabor or Tabor? Tabor, Tabor. I think,
3: uh, as per Tabor. our good friend Renat last week. Uh,
1: they took place, as I said, in Tabor in Checha. Um, out at the weekend, we of course previewed them last week, Rob, I think we and Renat, uh, Renat Scotter that is from Sporza, also accurately predicted the outcome. We said that Femme van Empel would win the women's race and she did, convincingly, ahead of Lucinda Brandt and Puck Peterser. And we also said that MVDP would absolutely cakewalk the men's race, which he did, Rob and Brian, ahead of... Joris Nievenhaus and Michael van Turenhout was his sixth senior Cross Rainbow jersey, meaning he's now just one away from Eric de Vlaminck's record of seven. But is that where it also all ends? Because as already alluded to, Mathieu van der Poel did suggest that he may at least take a gap yard from Cross, if not completely jack it in. Um, He sort of said, well, his only motivation... To start training next year would be to equal the Vlaminck's record. And um, at the same time, he doesn't just want to ride the Worlds. So, um, if he is going to do cross, he would have to do the whole season. Um, it sounds as though he's leaning towards not doing cross next year, chaps. But we'll probably, we'll probably make an appearance at some point again in the future i'll
3: take your eyes on the world cup and what happens with that they haven't announced that yet there is talk of it becoming a two-month affair sort of december and january maybe that might be a little bit better for somebody to decide they were going to do that season rather than the other
1: season that starts in october and finishes in february we should also tell you that zoe Baxter was the winner of the women's under 23 title no big surprise there i don't think and Tibor Del Grosso, a Dutchman with an Italian name, won the under-23 crown. Finally, from Checha, Tabor, was of course last hurrah for Zdenek Stibar, a 38-year-old, three-time cyclocross world champion, also winner of stages in the Tour de France and the Vuelta a España, He also won a Strade Bianche, Omloop, Head Newsblad and an E3, Harold Becker. E3, what's the official name, Rob? Um, which the, one? Head Repress, Harold Becker, the, uh, E3 Saxo Bank, blah, blah, blah. The race the race of disgrace that one yes yes yes, that's how it will henceforth be known um steve incidentally finished 31st in the men's race seven minutes and one second down Uh, more importantly it was a sort of joyous send-off wasn't it um i think there there were a few tears um now to the road lots catch up on there the aso-backed alula tour took place in saudi arabia just bookmark aso and saudi arabia for something we may discuss in a minute Race consisted of five stages. They were won by Kasper van Uden, uh, Søren Varenskul, uh, van Uden again, Tim Merlia and Simon Yates. Yates, who with that victory on the last day, on the Queen stage in fact, to the sky views of Harat Uwayarid, Uwayarid uh, also took the GC, a uh, huge result for the team's co at Alula also sponsor the race uh, second overall was the belgian pseudo quick step sensation william junior lecerf uh Le Cerf. um perfectly bilingual apparently william junior Le Cerf. so i can i'm allowed to say it and pronounce it in french um with a french accent rob i think um, more on him later um third was uae's finn fisher black From the new world, I should also add that we will talk a lot more in a lot more detail about uh, these races, the the, the road racing that took place at the weekend and last week uh, later in the episode. Um, From the new world pro cycling to the old world, specifically the Etoile de Bessege, a race that's wobbled, teetered, struggled financially over the last few years and was rocked further to the tune of hundreds of thousands of euros, the organiser said, by the cancellation of stage one due to French farmers' strikes were industrial action. Uh, Thereafter, stages were won by Axel Laurence, Mads Pedersen, Samuel Leroux, surprising that one from a rider on a Conti division team, Van Riesel-Roubaix. And the last stage was taken by Kevin Vauclin of Arkea Samsic, who was two seconds shy of dislodging Pedersen from the top step of the podium on GC. Again, more on that race in part two. Um, Rob, you were also commentating on a stage race at the weekend. It was in Spain. What
3: happened? Yeah, it was the 75th Volta la Comunità Valenciana, Tour of Valencia, basically. It started in Beni Casim, sort of San Remo of Spain, a big festival town. Alessandro Tonelli, an Italian, appropriately then, won the stage. He went in a breakaway, had the yellow jersey with it. Next day, Mate Mohoric won after a descending masterclass. Jonathan Milan won a sprint on day three. Then it was an all-American weekend. Brandon McNulty winning uphill and taking the yellow jersey. Will Barter with a first-ever pro win away from Movistar on the least expected day because we thought it was going to be a sprint and they won in Valencia but
1: McNulty held on to the overall Rob I asked you for a simple list of stage winners so you delivered some lovely flourishes there um, local colour music festivals um, doc- references to Netflix documentaries yeah. just flashing away outside That's of Stump whilst uh- you know. That's what we pay the big bucks for. Uh, last bit of road racing I'm going to cover is the women's uh, Vuelta a la Comunita. It, it, it it, I saw it listed as the Vuelta VC. Yeah, um,
3: CV, Comunita Valenciana. CV, yeah. Sorry. Uh, it's a bilingual okay. region, isn't it? And depending on yes. which part of Valencian, sort of Castilian or Catalan is the predominant language, usually north is more Catalan, south is more Castilian.
1: Anyway, Rob, the winner of that was a French woman, Cédrine Carbayol, very Breton-sounding surname, that Carbayol, and a Breton rider is in the news for less auspicious reasons or has been in the last 24 hours. The UCI announced yesterday that the Decathlon AG2R La Mondiale rider Franck Bonamour has been provisionally suspended due to unexplained abnormalities in his biological passport. Bon amour's team were at pains, that is um, Decathlon ag 2 uh, were at pains to point out that the irregularities date from before when he joined the team. He joined the team at the start of last year. Uh, Rob, second bit of important doping-related news in the last few days, because we've also had reports from Spain about the Operación Ilex investigation. The... the Suggestion that that probe, that investigation, will likely end with some of the individuals involved punished for minor trafficking but not doping offences. Uh, Marca, a Spanish newspaper, also referred to sources indicating that the biggest fish uh, in the investigation, Superman Lopez, is likely to see his provisional UCI suspension become a life ban before very long. Uh, it wasn't entirely clear, oh, well, apart from the sources they referred to and what information that was base but um i did read about there are transcripts that have been leaked aren't there from the investigation and it does all sound quite compromising certainly for superman lopez chaps uh, the next item is an important one tour of britain and the women's tour we know that the previous organizers of both events sweet spot recently entered liquidation and we learned last week that the National Federation British Cycling will step in to organise both races in 2024. Just this morning, I spoke to the British Cycling CEO, John Dutton OBE, about that
4: um, you know, we've inherited uh, a complex situation uh, we have a great degree of determination to deliver two races this year Tour of Britain for women in June and Tour of Britain for men in September um, it's first so say it is a race against the clock uh, to ensure those races uh, go ahead but we, we're doing everything in our power uh, to make sure um, what I would describe as the jewel in the crown um, of uh, domestic racing here in Great Britain um, happens um, and happens in 24 with a view to growing uh, the properties thereafter yeah we, we it, it's hard uh it's not quite impossible uh daniel i'm um full of determination uh full of energy and we're just going to give it everything we've got uh, and if we come up short it won't be through the lack of uh effort um or the investment that we're making uh into uh the races so june and the wins, uh the tour of britain for women is uh difficult um obviously september a bit more uh time but also uh, a larger race larger footprint uh bigger geography. Whilst being optimistic, uh, Daniel, I'm also a, a realist um, and uh, I've spent 28 years in the sports uh, industry um, and it's probably the hardest I've ever seen in the industry in terms of driving commercial uh, revenue and we've seen that manifest in different ways. Is that sport in general, John, or cycling? I, 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 yeah, it's, it's cycling uh, but sport in general. Um, I, I think we see in the UK the behemoth of the Premier uh, League mm. into football and that goes from strength to strength but many other sports are suffering the same way that uh, cycling. uh, has uh, these races are expensive Uh, anything in the UK on the highway now is more costly whether that's from a policing safety uh, risk perspective Uh, so what that needs to be financially sustainable is to drive revenue, whether that be from broadcast uh, sponsorship uh, rights fees that's been contributed from the uh, public sector. So we're under no illusions of how hard this is, uh, Daniel, but I think it's a testament to uh, the determination of British Cycling that they um, we appreciate uh, how important these uh, races are. And we launched last week uh, a five-year event vision Um, obviously the story of britain for men and women are part of that but it's much more about social impact about connecting with communities uh, about doing some of the uh, incredible work uh, that already happens but really tying that together with the visibility that major events uh, bring and we're really excited
1: about that just a very last couple of things john Um, one mm, can you give us any kind of date in terms of routes or sort of target dates where you'll aim to be um, announcing a route and um, and and secondly is a scaled down version of the women's tour or the Tour of Britain fewer race days yeah, are, are
4: the From a Tour of Britain um, women's perspective we have confirmed that it will be uh, less than six days uh, which has uh, come before 4.24 uh, the men's uh, race will remain at eight days in the calendar dates uh, that have been published um, we would like um, in the next couple of of months uh to be in a position to confirm our intentions with regard to the tour of britain uh, women um that has to happen anyway just because of uh, where we are from a time perspective uh but yeah the team seem working really hard uh we want to provide some certainty and some clarity um and we hope to do that within the next couple of months
1: brian as an outsider i mean to a certain extent we're all outsiders commenting on this um neither of us well, none of us currently live in the uk and um so we—it's it's perhaps harder for us to sort of, um pick the the bones out of a wider phenomenon of uh, a sort of crisis in British cycling, with uh, races disappearing and a lot of talk of the bust after the boom. In fact, just this morning on Tuesday, there was an article in the Guardian newspaper by Jonathan, Liu, about precisely that, about how. Um, the, the, the boom that sort of occurred coincided with team sky the olympics so on and so forth has now really turned to bust brian from the outside um, from your vantage point in tuscany what do you make of it all well you just you definitely i guess it's the same with certain
2: teams as well the the comings of go and goings of say maybe relevance strength finances etc and we it's something that I, I, a lot of countries, I think, are quite concerned about. That not particularly in outside, of the Danish cycling, but they, Danish cycling is probably one of the strongest countries in the world when it comes to to cycling. And, and there's certain things in in Britain that that definitely hasn't helped. Uh, I think I'm not blaming Brexit for the demise of the or the liquidation of the former Tour Britain. Uh, ownership, but I think there's a lot of things that aren't particularly working very well for Britain compared to how they used to. Uh, I don't think cycling is a popular sport for parents to send their kids to do. I, I'm not sure I would either if I was living close to, to larger uh, cities in Britain, but it's I think the it's, it seems to me that the grassroots part of it has, has somehow diminished a little bit or vanished, and uh, it makes a lot of sense to say that Ineos is very far from being a British team Looking at the looking at the roster, looking at the potential for having a you know Grand Tour winner at least in that team. There's still, and as mentioned as well in the Guardian article, there's still you know a high level of British professionals. But it's not. Uh, but I'm also thinking sometimes. Well, the highest ever. Yeah, the highest but I'm ever. I'm also thinking. Uh, I mean, for for British fans, for the people who would love to see cycling live. Uh, it's, I'm sure it's important to that there is a tour of Britain but I don't think it's the saving grace of of British cycling or the future of British cycling I think that's that's part of you know the grassroots to take care of is part of, of the professionals to to lead the way and sometimes you you I guess you have to you have to let go what can't stand on itself uh, on its own is that is
1: that um I well, I, 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 I was I was about to say that um, this is a temporary measure, certainly to save the Tour of Britain and the women's tour. I mean, if if we go back um, to the, the sort of boom years, the golden years around sort of 2014, 15, um, it would have been inconceivable that such a thing could occur. And certainly back then there was talk of ASO Well, ASO had already um, put their hat in with the Tour de Yorkshire, which survived and sort of thrived for a number of years. But there was also talk of them wanting to maybe um, take the Tour of Britain away from sweet spot. There was talk of RCS getting involved. And um, uh, to go back to what I just said a minute ago, this is a, a temporary measure that British cycling are trying to save the races. I do believe, I understand that after 2025, um, these races might be put out to sort of tender again they might be up for grabs and um, it's going to be interesting to see if there is any interest at that point from uh, orga- an organization like ASO um, RCS. You, you, you mentioned grassroots I believe that the, the grassroots levels is quite healthy um, there's certainly a lot of talent coming through um, a lot of people sort of willing to volunteer on that level because it is a sort of scene as well that as well as the policing that has been a bit of a bone of contention that costs a huge amount of money in the uk compared to other places where races are organized um it, it relies on volunteers and it's a struggle on some levels and um, to get people to volunteer not for example at the grassroots um level but it's a complex it's a complex can picture I, isn't it can i just because add one thing Gone. if you look at the thing yeah. that this is now recycling
2: making an investment to make sure that at least it's it's going to stay on for this year and then maybe be put in a tender next year you know denmark just applied for the world championships in 2029 with a huge amount of money going into it and i often think you know that, i mean that's great for copenhagen that's great for the other cities taking part but if you if that type of money that type of investment if you put that into talent development for safety, for campaigns, helping young people to get into cycling. If you look at the overall future for any country, be it, uh, be it Britain or Denmark, I think that money is probably way better spent. I mean, Denmark I already spends a certain amount of you know money for Tour of Denmark and for talent development. But I think if you really want to help British cycling, I'm not sure that the Tour of Britain is the most relevant place to to. Start a massive investment. That's that's just my opinion. I'm not sure that's good. That's not the saving grace of of British cycling. I'm sad to say.
3: I think that I understand where you're coming from there, but I do think that the the sport or any sport needs needs a hook, needs something for for people, for young kids to be able to go out and watch. You know, where there's no there's no sort of coincidence that I grew up like in football and cricket, because that's what I was taken to see. And that's where the teams we had to go and watch, you know, very strong amateur cricket leagues, fantastic. Well, at the time, fantastic professional football. I wouldn't say the same after this week's going on over in the northwest of England. Uh, but that's another story. But you need that. You need um, a race where people who know nothing about the Tour de France are going to be able to come into contact with it. But that's just
2: five days, isn't it? Isn't it like if you had a, is, a proper racing is. series? or a a continental team at a a rather high level don't you think that would be more of a a crowd a a potential hook
4: Uh,
3: it certainly would and I think it needs that as well but having worked for a national broadcaster trying to cover cycling for a little bit tearing my hair out at them not really wanting to understand the sport and publishing reports saying you know I don't know, uh, the star of the time, whether it was Froome, Wiggins, Yates, whoever, finished in 355th position when they'd all finished on the same time. Little ma- things like that where they didn't want to understand it. But that's where people get their news from still. And that's where people get into it. It needs that sort of mainstream access. And I think only um, an international stage race can bring that. But, but then you, ne- like you need to do a better job am- of filtering it filtering it down Sorry to what for, you're then talking about.
2: dragging on about this, but has there been a collective amnesia? Because, I mean... You've been part of building up that audience and and, connecting them to the major events.
3: Yes, but on satellite television, on pay pay services, this needs to be something that's free and it needs to be something that people talk about in the newspapers, people talk about on the news bulletins rather than it being a last item. And I think it's a difficult place to get to to break the dominance of other sports. I'm not saying we're ever going to be at the level of football or anything like that, but it needs a British rider... And, and, and again it, perhaps it says something about society that, that's not great either that it needs a British rider to do something in a home race to get that attention well, I think,
1: well later we're going to talk about Italy, And we're going to talk about an Italian and a former Italian Pied Piper and what the absence of one now and the effect that that's had. And um, I think you do have to acknowledge as well that, you know, we talked about the the, the number of British riders, a record number of British riders at the top of the sport and also on the women's side as well. And that is very easily connectable to the success of a few three or four individuals in a certain period um, the Cavendishes the Wiggins and, and the Frooms as well um, so that you know that the top of the sport the very pinnacle of the sport is really important isn't it but um I, I get what you're saying brian Um there are lots of different ways to invest money and invest your energies if you are a governing body um you know just on the tour of britain we heard that john dutton talk about the sort of logistics of the race and what the new race might look like um again i come at this from a, a real layman's perspective and um, I'm, I'm in danger of sort of suggesting things that aren't very well thought out but you you think of a race like the tour down under um it's based in one hotel essentially the whole week and it, it it has never really thought or talked about going to other areas of australia it doesn't feel that that is part of its kind of vocation um to take the race everywhere in australia um and it's, it's viable, again, completely different set of circumstances, but when we talk about the costs and the difficulties, the logistics and so forth, um, it strikes me that a, a more simple um, iteration version of the Tour of Britain than the one we saw for many years could be a convenient and sensible solution, but we'll see. We'll see what they come up with, and um, well, let's just hope that they do come up with something. Um, chaps, um, final item. It's not. This is not official. Officially included in the news roundup this week, but there was a big story about. Uh, Saudi money, again, investment in the one cycling project, uh, Saudi investment fund being behind $270 million, or was it Euro, investment in the one cycling project. Um, we've also had an interview this morning in the Spanish press from the Movistar boss Eusebio Unzué Talking about the way cycling needs to modernize and um, rethink its approach um, to certain aspects of um, what we currently see. Uh, I just thought I'd kick that ball up in the air and see if anyone wants to get underneath it and sort of chest it and slot um, it into the bottom corner.
2: How many times have we heard senior yeah, team managers or team owners say that cycling needs to reinvent itself. It needs to have a different narrative. I mean, I, I would love for cycling, professional cycling, to be more sustainable for everyone involved, right? Uh, I, I'm not of the persuasion that the one cycling or, or investment coming from that part of the world is, is the way to go. I think we're selling out on a lot of other things if we do. But I don't think fundamentally cycling as a narrative, cycling as the calendar as the race format as how we perceive winners and losers or rankings needs to change i'm I'm perfectly happy with how cycling is i love the classics i love the grand tours as other races that i'm very fond of you know tour Best country other races i don't really think that cycling needs a huge revolution backed by a saudi uh, investment to really have a, a bright future I, I i'm not that convinced about that i'm sorry I can see where team managers are coming Brian. from, obviously, but I, know, I don't think that's necessarily for the better of, of cycling.
1: Brian, there is a link to the conversation we've just had um, about the Tour of Britain, possibly, in the sense that cycling always gives the impression of being sort of stretched financially, but also always, and I've said this many times on the podcast, it's also seemed to me at times to have certain delusions of grandeur. And I don't know whether this is unique to cycling or whether all sort of third tier you could call them third tier sports or second tier sports have this if we were huge I don't know um, volleyball fans Rob you've worked in volleyball is there a constant kind of mood music in volleyball about we are one season away or we're one development one reform away from breaking the next tier breaking through that glass ceiling I don't know but in cycling that does certainly seem to be a common theme one could say that in this case it is simply greed and it is simply um people at the top of the sport already earning a lot of money but having got a taste for more and having got the idea that they can earn even more and um uh, we've seen that in cycling over the last few years the rich have got very much richer
3: definitely i guess i think cycling and again coming a little bit from that example you used from volleyball that does suffer from a little bit of the the same sort of pathology of wanting to constantly fix itself you know wanting to constantly sort things out and pretending that not all is rosy yeah things could be better I think I talked last week actually on the podcast about having a better point system and, and things like that I wouldn't say it needs a complete revolution there are things that could be changed maybe the whole Paris Nice thing could be sorted out I don't know but you've also got a lot of riders who want a lot of racing at that time of year getting ready for the classics so that's also difficult to sort out um, using volleyball as an example every two or three years there was a new format to the Beach World Tour it always came in the middle of that bit after the Olympics where they were trying to sort of grab the terrain back from the visibility they'd have every four years and yeah and again I'm biased I love it it's a great sport it needs more visibility but it it needs to be a much more long-term plan, and the indoor game, I think, suffers less from from that sort of thing, just because you know you've got big clubs like Galatasaray, and a lot of the Italian clubs are very famous as well, and but uh, in Poland and Brazil, they, they've they've sort of had big, strong fan bases, and it's difficult to, to sort of break that down. It's like trying to trying to get football away from football fans. It, you know, they're going to hold on to what they've got with the national leagues and competitions, but they brought the Champions League in. There's now a domestic season and an international season, so there's not much break for, for players and things like that. They, they play domestic game in, in the winter, international in, in the European summer. And, and in cycling, yeah, we've already got quite a small break as well, haven't we? So if you're going to sort of pull this over a year then, you know, we, and the idea is globalisation, then we're going to be racing all year round. Is it going to become like tennis where there's really no break? I don't know where we're we going with it. I, it I'm, I'm open to listening to things, but I want to see a benefit for everybody, not just the rich at the top and the biggest teams. Sh-
1: sh- shall, I, shall I just fill the listeners in on where Eusebio Unthue, the star, the very long-standing, long-term uh, long-serving Movistar team manager, where he thinks it might go. Um, he talked about the sport being too animalistic, and for example, um, perhaps it being a good idea to introduce substitutes in grand tours, um, or um, give the option for riders once they have crashed to get treatment, not finish stages, and then to resume the race the following day. Which I can see one big, I can see one big issue with. Um, he also talked about 15-day grand tours as much as I so wince at the 15-day grand tour idea, um, that's because, because you do all three of, of them. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's um that's seven f- or eight fewer nights in hotel room in nice hotel rooms. Um no I I do I, I have more sort of sympathy with that idea and I can see how that makes more sense. Does it not fundamentally
3: change the sport? though Does it not fundamentally change what the well, grand tour winner is supposed
1: to be? The sport has already changed in the sense that sport has already changed radically in the sense that it, you could argue that it's no longer even an endurance event in the sense that um, stages now are typically 150 kilometers long whereas once they were three thousand oh, sorry not three thousand kilometers long 320 kilometers long in my day uh, um
3: <laughs> they don't yeah. know they're born three thousand yeah. kilometer stages and you had to get up at 1am i mean yeah. to be honest i mean well, um, we-
2: this is uh, i i like on we i think he's a real gentleman and um one of one of few at that level i would say at times but I, I mean, if, if that's really like someone as seasoned as him, someone as senior and who's seen as many things as he has, if that's really the best they can come up with for revolutionizing cycling or changing the narrative, I mean, come on. Also, second of all, and I, re- I, I don't really care about the point system. I, I haven't... I, 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 have, I mean, I spend half my life following cycling and I don't care about the points. I really have no interest in that. It doesn't say anything... About racing, it doesn't say anything about character, panache or personality. I don't care about the points. And like I said, again, if that's the best they can come up with. And, and also look at the races that have been added via Middle Eastern investments. Have they changed anything other than making the season longer? And I mean, great for the riders that they can race in in good in a nice climate and stay in nice hotels. Not particularly interesting racing. When you look at the Worlds, when it was held in the Middle East and now it's going to be so again, I think in, in 2028. Has it really added anything to making cycling more interesting? I I don't I honestly don't think so. I mean, if 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 you disagree, feel free to to let me know. I just I just I don't really see any major revolution coming from that type of investment.
3: Uh, on the one hand, well, I would God. say that I think that should be racing all over the world because you know everybody deserves to 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 compete and partake, and we would not want to deny any country that like wants those stories. So I think bring that on, great. But in terms of you know, saying this is reinventing the wheel and something like that, I completely agree with you. It's it's not new, but I I do think we should it's be able to the world. It's certainly not a spectator.
2: It's not a festival of no. excitement. And I mean, I I just don't really. I mean, they they're trying. I think they're talking about things that I'm not really sure that they they can imagine themselves. Like, how, I mean, I'm I'm. If I was a team manager, I'd be, certainly be desperate to try and you know secure funding and all. But I, but are we securing funding for the? future of cycling or are we securing funding for the holding companies that run cycling teams that's i think those are two very different things
1: as someone with intimate knowledge of some of these negotiations um to do with the one cycling project said to me a few weeks ago we're going to stitch together all the same rubbish we've got now that no one watches and repackage it and give it a new name and yet there'll be a league table so what yep well,
2: at least the people in the know they they actually understand. Not,
1: not my views. Not my views. No, not very far really from mine. Reporting. Well, chaps, uh, as stated in the first part, there was an awful lot of racing uh, at the weekend and indeed all of last week. There will be, well, an inordinate number of races over the next few weeks, both stage races and one-day races, mainly in Europe. But we've got the UAE Tour coming up as well. So all very interesting, exotic in some cases. I set you, chaps, some homework. This is the way they're they're, at the podcast is going to proceed roughly over the next few weeks we're going to talk in the second part most weeks about what have been some of the highlights main talking points of the week's racing your homework chaps was to well um, bring uh, I don't know some delicious dish for us to we'll serve up and and digest together and discuss together um, Rob you were working on the tour of well we'll call it the um tour of valencia of the valencian community um you go first what particularly caught your attention a race of course won by Brandon McNulty
3: yep it was like I said an all-American weekend at the end because Will Barter pulled off that win with an attack 50 kilometers from the line on the last day and it never looked like he was going to get there but I want to focus my attention on somebody who didn't finish across the line in first place at all at any point Um, it's more of a a pincho really if we're talking cuisine rather than a big paella down there in, in Valencia a gentleman named Gorka Sorarain, 27 years of age, only a second year professional, first full year. He's from Tolo, in the north of the Basque Country, not too far from San Sebastián. There's a very famous
1: steak restaurant Is there? Is there? Rob, Is there? Yeah, extremely famous. That's featured on um, lots of um, food programs in, I think, the UK. Is there like the one Anthony called uh, went- Eschebarilla? Um, no, it's <laughs> not that one. I know the one you mean. Um, but I think Anthony Bourdain went to this particular one in Tolosa. When are you
2: taking me?
3: <laughs>
1: I don't eat meat anymore, <laughs> so anyway. Um,
3: anyway, I don't know if Gorcas or has been, but he might have been to celebrate the old basketball triumph before he became a bike rider, because he was playing fourth division basketball in Spain just before the pandemic. Of course, a Basque man, so always a cycling fan, but he had never really ridden a bike in anger before COVID struck, he had a bike at home and he decided that he'd get a home trainer to keep fit. And, you know, presumably once the basketball be being pretty good shape, he was combining his basketball with being an electrical engineer. That was his day job. And um, after COVID, you know, sort of went away the first time and things were allowed to resume, he started bike riding properly. He didn't compete as an amateur until 2022, so not last season, the season before. And it was the last year allowed to compete as amateur in in the Basque country as well, sort of mid to late 20s. And he he discovered he was rather good at it. He had great numbers. He won races in places called Berriatua and Guernica. Um, And then... I think after sort of demonstrating that he could go pretty well uphill for a big guy and then, you know, finish off from a small group sort of attacker, rider, um, he transferred that to a Portuguese team. And he was still doing his job, by the way, as an electrical engineer at this point. So he was going to work in the morning, training in the evening, and then putting in extra hours training on a Saturday and a Sunday when he had a little bit of time. And he turned up at the Spanish Nationals last year. He finished fifth. In the elite race last year, riding for a continental third, uh, third division, you know, Portuguese team with no support, still an amateur. Cajar like what they saw. They picked him up, threw him straight into a grandissima. Volta Portugal, which I know is one of your favorite races, Daniel. Hipster's Grand Tour, as you often call it. Um, and then, you know, he, he started this year racing in Valencia and he took the King of the Mountains jersey on day one so from basketball and picking up the two and three points he was doing the same on the mountains on the first day and he had the King of the Mountains day until the second to last day so I think that was a really nice story it, well, he's not a ski jumper I know Daniel but, but it was a good one come on
1: what's his record like in the four hills <laughs> tournament um well, we will look out for him, um, Rob. Um, do you know anything about his race programme? Um, will he get a ride in the Vuelta? Are they going to ride Garral, the Vuelta?
3: Actually? Uh
1: has not been announced yet, has it? I don't think the Vuelta Wild cards, have they? No, there was a time in the winter, we mentioned earlier in the episode, the Operacion Ilex was rumbling on, and there was a time where that team looked as though its future might be in jeopardy, because it had been sort of mentioned in dispatches of that, investigation but um they have sort of cleared their name there was they?
3: talk actually in one of the articles covering all of that mess that you talked about earlier on which isn't very clear really depending on how many articles you read um there was a suggestion that they might be after clearing their name and receiving some sort of compensation for their name having been dragged through the mud so uh, i think it's important to state that
1: Yes and the way in particular the uh, classified information um, that was part of the police investigation had been leaked To various journalists at the Vuelta a España uh, last year. Um, Rob, uh, just on Valencia, uh, um, the race was won by Brandon McNulty in very convincing fashion. Um, We'll talk maybe about one of the riders he beat um, in a moment or in a few minutes. But Brandon McNulty um, strikes me, chaps, that he is a rider who, of, of all of the sort of would be. Leaders, pretenders at UAE Team Emirates. Uh, I think it's it's sort of been widely agreed um, by various people that this is getting a little bit well overcrowded at uae and they've all i think pretty much all got long contracts that go beyond the end of 2025 don't think it would surprise any of us if we get to the end of this season and whether it's an almeida whether it's an ayuso or a mcnulty there may be someone who tries to or has to break free Um, at the end of the year Brandon McNulty I think is good enough to lead a lot of teams in the world tour and it wouldn't shock me if come the end of the year he is wanting a little bit more freedom
3: Yeah, and and this time of year I think it's where he's proving how good he is at leading, isn't it? Because I saw a quote from Janetti, his team boss, at the start of the year saying, Yeah, his numbers are good, he's climbing, his time trial, and he's recovery. He can win everything, but sometimes he's going to have to help others. They also said they'd give him a race program before that that would allow him to go for his own opportunities. And he's grasping that with both hands, isn't he? Because he was good in Mallorca. You know, he was up there three times looking for the win. He didn't manage it. But as you said, Daniel, he was absolutely outstanding in Valencia. And that's his first. GC prize since he won the Tour of Sicily and sort of made a name for himself almost five years ago now and if you look at who he beat you mentioned you know a couple of names or you alluded to the fact we'll be talking about them
1: in a minute Um, yeah it was a good field uh, He has a contract until um, 2027 um, Brandon McNulty so if he does want to leave UAE at the end of the season no suggestion that he does but should he want to um, they will need to negotiate some kind of break um, from that deal um, Rob just on the last day Will Barter a lovely story that um, Will Barter is a guy who a couple of years ago looked as though he might fall off the edge of the earth as far as the World Tour is concerned and he got a contract with Movistar at the sort of 11th hour it was a bit of an unlikely um, partnership or it seemed like between an American rider and a Movistar and he's gone quietly about his business. Very good time trialist. Almost won a, a to time trial in Galicia. It was sort of pipped by Primoz Roglic a couple of years ago. But as I say, he's gone quietly about his business. And um, on the last day, he did something quite extraordinary. Um, it, it struck me watching that race that if one was trying to explain to someone who has never watched a bike race why a peloton goes faster than a single rider um that particular stage and that ride by will barter would have made any attempt to explain <laughs> that look rather stupid
3: yeah i was commentating with matt stevens and we were looking at each other because you know and as brian knows there's often a formula to this you're thinking well yeah, you know, we've got to start changing the tone here because it looks like he's going to get caught and it looks like, you know, we've got to sort of start talking about who's there for the sprint, why this time's riding, why that team's riding. Um, and he just wouldn't come back. And it was, he had Chente Garcia Costa in the car, didn't he? It was the fuga de la fuga, the breakaway of the breakaway where he decided to go on his own on the last climb and, and he had a gap of about half a minute or less with 30 to 40 kilometres to go. Most of it flat road, but... Daniel, as soon as he got to the edge of Valencia, the roads became a bit more technical. There were lefts and rights. And it had echoes from the women's race that was pretty same in the day. And And it was it was nice because you talked about him being so close to winning that Vuelta stage that would have changed his life. And I'm sure his salary as well at the Mirado de Saro I think it was, something like that, up in Galicia. Um, he's from Idaho. He's 28 years of age. So he's been working at this for a long time. Turned pro with CCC, had a year at EF. And like you say, he's found maybe an unlikely homey movie star but he certainly looked like he was enjoying it the weekend and they were as well because they've got two you know home wins in spain now in
1: two weeks it, it was a bit of a cock-up though wasn't it from the peloton um and it, it, it's something we often seen in, in spanish races in spanish stage races i've seen this many many times that the, the sort of horsepower in the in the chasing group is is reduced or is not what it is in a lot of races we watch because there are so many climbers in the Spanish peloton you know particularly the Spanish domestic teams we saw Huescaltel were were pulling with Trek with Little Trek mainly on the way into Valencia and those Spanish continental division teams or pro continental division teams um, they generally have quite a high Quota of climbers.
3: Yeah, and you know I have, you have to hand it to Elskartel because they were they were pulling for a rider who's a track racer from Mallorca by the way, who's sort of finding his way on the road, Xavi Kanye, yes, who'd actually already been the breakaway earlier on in the day, but they wanted to give him a chance of maybe, I don't know, finishing second or third behind Milan, I could imagine. And and you're right, there, there was an issue in that peloton in that Jonathan Milan was head and shoulders above everybody else. So everybody was leaning on Lidl Trek. Well, literally, literally. Yes. Literally, he's about six it's foot seven. Certainly. Um, and the other sort of top-tier sprinter, if you like. I mean, he's probably not in that top tier yet, but he had a few goals at the Giro last year. Arnaud he'd been dropped and he wasn't going to get back on, so Antoine Marchais weren't really riding for him. And, and Lidl was sort of running out of options. They were a man down because Fabio Felline didn't start at the week. Uh, Emmanuel Gebregzabi has ridden all week and all day again to try and bring it up. And uh, they had sort of climbers pulling at the end, like Sam Oman, and as good as Sam Oman is, they needed more horsepower.
1: Brian, it was a pretty good week for Trek, uh, for a little Trek in Valencia nonetheless. Well, at least they, they did get a stage win with, it was one stage win, yep. wasn't it? With Jonathan Milan, Rob. Um, they had an even better week in France at the Etoile de Bessege in spite of that uh, remarkable last day stage win by Kevin Vauclin I said in this roundup he was two seconds away from dethroning Mads Pedersen Um, he was quite disappointed uh, Vauclin very disappointed in fact in spite of winning the stage Um, he was sort of uh, cursing his luck or cursing things that he maybe could have done differently I'm sure there were places where he could have gained a second or two on those 10 I think it was 10 point something kilometres um, nonetheless Brian uh, Maz Pedersen impressive start to the season and it, doubly impressive because this was very much predicted expected and yet he still delivered
2: Yeah, it did. I mean, I think it was a little bit closer than he would have liked it to be. Because, as you mentioned, two seconds is not a lot. And in that type of company, not taking anything away from the other riders, uh, making you know taking stage wins, etc. He he probably should win that race if he was up to his normal level at this time of year. Uh, I caught on to an interesting quote from him. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time writing press releases, and I know, you know, that's. Some of it is is strategic. Some of it is uh, orchestrated. Get out. yeah, Never. <laughs> Really, yeah, who'd have thunk it? But uh, he he did say something um, that I that caught my interested uh, interest because he said he would rather not win anything else, but if he was able to take a monument, that would be that would be his season. And if you sort of look at this at his palmares and look at how he's, I would say also developed. You know, he won the worlds at, at a very young age. He he needs to win a monument. This is really where he's at now in in his uh, in his career. And if you look at how his he's gone the last two years, you know sixth in San Remo uh, in twenty two and 23, eighth in Flanders, third last year, fourth in Roubaix last year. And he, I, I think he's the 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 curse of Mass Peterson and the classics. Is I mean you, you have to have a lot of luck, and it's also hard if if you only focus on two Sundays a year where you want to be your best. All kinds of things can go wrong, and you'll have had a terrible season. He hasn't because he's won races left and right, and his his level has been astonishing from February to all, all the way through September. But the difficult situation for him now is, as as it is with anyone who's not Pogacar or Vingegaard on the Grand Tours, he's riding in an era where he's up against phenomenons. Really, I mean, when you see the Tour Flanders last year, you know Pogacar was uh, winning and, and Vanderpol was second. It's it's not an easy. It's not an easy situation for him to be in, but I think everyone is, is expecting him to to win a classic, uh, a monument, a real monument. I mean, it's one Velburg, it's one Kühne, but he needs to win a classic. I think this year, next year, or else it's going to start to be potentially even a burden. A... A burden, even for him, not winning, even and getting closer is not good enough. You know, being on the podium
1: is is always great, but with the, with the type of rider he is, it, it's really crunch time, isn't it? In other sports, in golf, you have the sort of dreaded epithet "best player in the world" not to, who hasn't won a major. In cycling, you maybe have the best rider in the world who's not won a Grand Tour. Um, Is Mads Pedersen the best rider in the world? who hasn't won a monument um, best one day rider possibly possibly well he's
3: got everything else hasn't he I'm just looking now I've got my mass Pearson notes right in front of me I'm deep in prep for the classic so there to You're hand in I am it's in a, a Mads mad world, world. In Rob's bedroom, of course the world championship two Tour de France stages three Vuelta stages a Giro stage so he's got the you know, the the Grand Tour Trilogy down, he's got, as you mentioned, Brian, against Weevil, akurna national champion on the road, world champion I mentioned already. The only thing missing from his Palmares is a monument. He's been second in the Ronde van Vlaanderen, he's been third in the Ronde van Vlaanderen, plus all of those other places that you mentioned in San Remo and Roubaix. Um, it is the only thing missing. I... I wouldn't be his horse gents and say he needs to win a monument in the next couple of years because he's had a bloody good career already, hasn't he? When oh, you look a a at lot of things. people
2: would obviously be jealous of, of his results, but I think for his for his own determination and for... It's, it's an interesting thing now with um, with Little Trek and they, they've sort of moved in different directions in the last couple of years and now they are moving towards, uh, well with the investment and bringing on Tao Ginghardt, that they want to be a grand tour Winning team, or at least have a good crack at it. But I think the the leadership role that he has—he's won enough other races for it to be relevant for him to be a team leader because he really delivers. He he, he wins five, eight significant races over the year. But I think I, I I'm probably more inclined to say what Daniel was a golf comparison or any other I suppose maybe a Grand Slam comparison in tennis that I think uh, probably even most of all himself thinks that it'll be. A disappointment a proper disappointment if he doesn't bag a monument in the next couple of years including yeah starting
1: starting in a month's time more or less i was going to say brian um his relationship with milan sanremo it's one of the most confusing to me at, at least love affair since i don't know ross and rachel in friends um <laughs> very much very much oh, oh, showing my age there and um, very much kind of oh well mainly off and then was sort of turned on last year um, I mean, he did. He, he did, did a, it. He tried it and decided he quite liked it, so he's, he's going to do it again. Well, he? I
2: was talking to one of the people in his entourage earlier today, and it's interesting that his his only his, his eye opening performance in Sanremo was because he was a substitute. He came. I don't know who was it, Stoven, maybe who wasn't able to race, and then they brought him in relatively last minute, and he. he I remember him. Sp- being quoted at the time, saying that it wasn't a race that he liked a lot. It was boring. It was, it wasn't. It it wasn't that attractive to him because it was also fairly easy. Um, but I think he's. I mean, I saw also. Yeah, was it yesterday? He, he did recall him with with Kirsch on the Poggio He's probably probably a bit more ambitious about it this year. Given this, also his his current level, he should be pretty okay to to have his say in the final this year.
1: One thing I quite like about Mads Pedersen, Brian, um, he's quite a contrarian. Um, it's, it can be I said that uh, I hope that you weren't in cantankerous mood today he can be quite um, sort of whimsical in a way that um, I very much identify with you know doesn't like out alt- won't won't go to altitude doesn't do altitude training camp doesn't like Milan San Remo um, and also you know, until, very much a man after my own heart in until, that, well, not, uh, you, well until last year he
2: was he was convinced he was not uh, gonna live anywhere else but you know, a stone's throw from where he grew up, and now he's he's moved to Switzerland. Uh, I'm not sure that's for for training reasons, but that's you know whatever. So, but he is certainly someone who I, I mean, the, there's a famous quote uh, in the days leading up to uh, the World Championships in Yorkshire because Miss Peterson rides with uh, mudguards whenever it's raining, and he was riding mudguards in the when 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 in he was in Yorkshire testing out the Paku, and Garen Thomas was like. Who's that idiot riding mudguards as, you know for coming into like such an important race that looks pretty pretty lame. He just does he, he certainly does things his own way, and I think that part of his psychology is also he has this ability to self hypnotize himself sometimes when he sets his goal, goals and, and reaches them. I mean, I, I would probably add the the Olympic Games in in Paris this year as a as a big goal for him, and I think if he takes gold medal there. Finishing second in Roubaix will probably be be something that he'll be able to live with. But I think the, the fascinating thing is, and it's hard to target the classics because, other than everything else, can go wrong. But he's also up against some some pretty stiff competition. I would probably have him a little bit more in a favorite role than even Fanat, because because Fanat's always been well, he's he's won just San Remo obviously, but he's been a bit of a bridesmaid as of as of late in those races.
1: He's a contrarian, much like I can be at times. But he tend he tends to hate the things I like. You know, he, he hates being in the mount, alone in the mountains. I love that. Um, hates Milan San Remo, and um, yeah, he, he likes some of the things that I um, I'm less fond of. Um, Is he a Rivella fan? Chaps. Well, he uh, does live in Switzerland now, doesn't he? So, I mean, there's a light version. Well, yeah, I missed my opportunity to mention Rivella in my very tortuous intro about uh, indigenous drinks earlier on in the episode, because I saw Adam Blythe. I was very upset yesterday. Adam Blythe posting with a bottle of Rivella. That is my, get your tank off my lawn, Adam Blythe. That is my drink. and Before long, Adam Blythe will be popping up with a an endorsement a multi-million euro or Swiss franc endorsement deal with Revella, and I'll be very agree because that's my drink um, I discovered that and popularised it um, chaps um, mm, I've got something that I would like to mention from this weekend as well um, also in Valencia uh, in Spain Oh, and also the Saudi tour it refers to um, we've talked so much in the last few weeks about young riders emerging talents um, one who really caught my eye in Valencia it was the young Ethiopian rider um, Hagos Wale um, Rob there's been some confusion about how we should say his name what exactly is his full name um, we did a bit of research on this um, Hagos Wole is what we should be calling him and um, Beira is his other name um, but uh, I'm informed that Hagos Wole is just fine and well he was just fine particularly on the climbs in Valencia he was about the fourth best climber wasn't he on the hardest day he was really in impressive Valencia he was really impressive and you know it's a rider he's 22 years old fantastic story um, he's mm, he came to Europe and made his way to the pro scene, into the pro scene via the World Cycling Center, UCI World Cycling Center, but it was a very complicated journey. There's been a well, a war going on in Ethiopia, in the Tigray region where he's from as well um, in the last few years. Lost contact with his family, was sort of taken under marcelo Al- albacini's wing uh marcelo albacini is sort of um uh, a real st- stalwart of swiss cycling father to michael albacini um, the former Orica rider but Marcelo Albacini sort of adopted Hagos Wale and um, it, it was all it's all been very complicated at various times with visas and at one point he had to claim refugee status he was sort of living in a room with um, three other refugees or four other refu- refugees in Switzerland um, none of whom were cyclists or sportsmen they were smoking in the room and um, do doing all sorts of other things that weren't sort of conducive to the life and um, the, the regiment of a professional athlete but his talent has been pretty clear to anyone who's watched him over the last uh, three or four years and he's got a well he got a three year contract with Jaco Alula um, really really promising climber and really exciting rider generally um, so it was good to see him performing so well and another very promising young climber who caught the eye at the weekend was William Junior Le Cerf, William, William Junior Le Cerf, uh, as we may now call him. Um Sudal quick step, first year professional, as I said, Rob, in the intro. He uh, apparently, well, he was born in um, Brabant, f- uh, Brabant, Flamande. what's that in English? Rob? Flemish Brabant. Flemish Brabant. there you go um but he spent a long time or grew up in Wallonie so speaking French so he's perfectly bilingual Um, 54 kilos he's sort of I mean if you see him you might be reminded of uh, I don't know Lenny Martinez or uh, Kenny Ellison even a really sort of tiny rider um but on the queen stage in Saudi Arabia, he well he almost outclimbed Simon Yates, um, almost took the the general classification, and um, climbs with a very sort of eye-catching high cadence. Uh, and um, had some outstanding results in under-23 races in Italy last year, won the Piccolo Giro di Lombardia. Been touted, I saw articles last week, even in the Belgian press, talking about him as the new Remco Evenepoel. His um, pseudo-quick-step direct sportive class, Ludovic, said that was, in the words of our good friend, Francois Tomaso, bullshit. Uh, the two should not be compared. But um, William... Junior LeSelf um, will be in action at the Volta Catalunya at the end of March, and that'll be his first World Tour race. And it'll be interesting to see how he measures up um, in that company, mm. chaps. Yeah,
3: he actually made headlines before turning pro this time last year. He was in the Tour of Rwanda, I think, where he won a stage and wore... I'm not sure he won a stage, actually, but he wore the leader's jersey for a couple of days. He wore the leader's jersey for a couple of days, and then you mentioned the under-23 results as well. Uh, as you say, he's from Halle. Uh, well, he was born in Halle but grew up in over in Wallonie, so perfectly bilingual, perfect example of the modern Belgian, I guess, able to straddle both sides of the country, and you know, rather like Rem Kuev-Nepal hopefully get the support from all sides of Belgium
1: well chaps we've covered last week's racing in some detail now time for something a little bit different um there's going to be a lot of racing over the next few days chaps so next week's episode is going to be a packed one um it is also next week going to be a significant date for professional cycling it's 14th of uh, February Valentine's Day on Wednesday and that will mark the 20th anniversary of course of the death of Marco Pantani now thinking about all the racing we've got to discuss next week and thinking about the guests we've got on this week two Italophiles um I hesitated, I did hesitate um, when thinking about whether to include a segment on Marco Pantani and the anniversary of his death is obviously a subject that we have visited, revisited many times over the years and it's one that um, sort of stirs conflicting emotions and we will talk about some of those in a minute. Um, It's going to be... A significant date, particularly in Italy, one that's going to be marked by a lot of uh, debate, discussion. There are also going to be books that will be released this year um, commemorating Pantani's life, talking about his death. Of course, the Tour de France starts from Italy and will visit his homeland and um, visit Cesenatico where he is born um, one of those books will be edited by a good friend of the cycling podcast Filippo Cautz and it's called The Last Time That Pantani Went Away L'Ultima Volta che Se Ne andato Pantani and it is a collection of memories about the day when Pantani died and the hours after he died um, the next week On the date itself, 14th of February, I believe, on Italian national television, Uh, Rai, there is also going to be a new documentary about Marco Pantani, and the director of that will be another good friend of the cycling podcast, Stefano Rizzato. My question, chaps, um, on this date, 20 years after the death of Marco Pantani, is or was when I spoke to both Stefano Rizzato and Filippo Couts last week. What more is there to say that hasn't already been said about Marco Pantani?
0: It's for sure the, the biggest challenge uh, to say something new, to say something different. Uh, I was, uh, actually I was, uh, I wouldn't say a kid, but I was uh, 12 when uh, he won on Alpe d'Huez in uh, 1997. Uh, I was 13 when he... Uh, did a double in 1998 uh, and uh, I've seen the fascination uh, not fade away I've seen the fascination stay and I've seen the fascination being alive uh, despite him being dead 20 years now and uh, it's uh, something that I wanted to investigate I mean the idea is to investigate why this uh, sports figure Has uh, still such a big uh, impact uh, in uh, in the Italian sport and in the Tifosi. And uh, especially, I think there's something, there is something that is uh, totally uncommon, totally different that Pantani still has his Tifosi on the roots of big stages in the Giro or the Tour. This year, of course, they will be in the Tour as well and he's not there i mean there are a bunch of tifosi with uh, signs uh, with uh, bandanas uh, with the yellow flags and he's not there and I, I don't think there is any other sport figure in the world that has the tifosi alongside him but he's not there speaking about the people that i have been interviewing and the people in Cesenatico, his people somehow i would say they are nostalgic they are sadder than uh, they still haven't recovered i would say from the shock they say they still haven't recovered for their quest for uh, justice for what happened in 1999 for what happened in 2004 which is completely unclear for uh, for some reasons and i think this is what prevented this is what what is preventing all the people that loved pantani to find some closure and to find a closure that you need to just take the happy side take the vital side take everything that he did and just smile and sit back and watch uh, maybe what he did in europa in 1999 and say wow that's incredible and not thinking what happened just a few days later in campiglio uh, they, I think this is the, the mood, uh, and not still something with closure, but uh, still with some rage in it, some uh, quest for justice, and this is what's going on 20 years later.
5: You know, cycling is a sort of a national sport in Italy, and Pantani. with Pantani, Italian cycling took uh, wins that were missing since a lot of time. It was 33 years after the previous Tour de France won by Gimondi, and he he did the double, the Giron Tour, he was the last one. That, that double used to happen every decade at that time, but after it, it never happened. That makes it something even more extraordinary. But sporting results uh, are not enough to explain uh, Pantani's religion, and especially are not enough to explain why this religion, why this uh, affection to Pantani is still alive 20 years after his death. If you go to race today, you will still find Pantani fans. And you can see people cheering for, for Pantani. That is probably people who has been born after his victories, maybe after his death. And one thing that strikes me is that uh, banners for Pantani often go together with banners for Scarponi, a completely different rider who died tragically, like Pantani. And well, in the Pantani mythology, the tragic end is, uh, is very important. People still cheer Pantani to find a way to exorcise uh, a trauma. They still hurt for his death and for how his death happened and well the the day after Pantani's death Italian television interviewed Diego Armando Maradona another god probably another myth at least and Maradona said uh, Pantani needed people but when he died those people were not there we are all guilty and that's like another conclusion I find in this in this thing is that Perhaps in a, in a country so marked by centuries of Catholic culture, there is also a sort of a sense of guilt about Pantani. Like we cheered Pantani as he was our God, our victorious God, the one who did miracles. And now we still cheer for him because we realize that he was abandoned at the moment of his death, following this Catholic way of seeing uh, it was the moment of his of his uh, crucifixion so there are many maybes talking about Pantani, talking about Pantani today and um, I, I don't believe there is a single reason to explain uh, Pantani's effect in 2024 there have been a lot of journalistic inquiries about uh, what happened to him uh, in the Giro of 99 and in the following years and A truth has never been established, so it it is still useful to look for its truth, because uh, it's on the ashes of that cycling that today's cycling, today's sport, maybe, was founded. But above all, I still find the need for a reflection, and that is what you are doing today asking me about this. It still makes sense to talk about Pantani, because it makes sense to talk about what moves inside each of us. And what leads us to move, to believe, to love, I could say. So, talking about Pantani 20 years later is just another way of talking about men's relationship with mystery.
1: Well, chaps, uh, an invitation to reflect this date. Uh, this anniversary is an invitation to reflect. Um, some of what Stefano and Filippo said there is certainly an invitation to reflect. Um, just thinking about well the subject of Filippo's book, the the day when Pantani died. Um, Brian, funnily enough, coincidentally, um, I remember that, well, certainly two or three days after Michael Pantani's death, I was at the Trofeo La and in a mood of, well, of, of national mourning, not just mourning in the sport of cycling, but national mourning, a very sort of sombre and surreal atmosphere around that race. But that was also the first time I ever saw you. You were in the press room at uh, the uh, Trofeo La Iguala. And And, um, yeah, my memories of those days um, are ones of just total shock and numbness and, and personally as well sort of panic because we had a whole issue of Pro Cycling Magazine finished and ready to go to the printers and we decided to pretty much rip up the whole thing and I had to produce um, numerous articles um, in three or four days to sort of um, provide a, a fitting tribute to the life that Pantani had had, the career that he'd had and I suppose preface what has happened um, we sort of knew we got a sense already then that this was going to be a death that was that the whole of the world of cycling particularly Italy was going to take time and have great difficulty processing and 20 years on one could say that Italy and cycling still has not completely processed or or, mm, satisfactorily processed the death of Marco Pantani.
2: No, I agree. Also, listening to our, our friends in those quotes, that there is an inconclusiveness to both. I mean, some of it is factual, which I think we can put aside for the moment because that's you know still ongoing at least sometimes. But I think the the emotional scar and the the healing process of certainly our generation of people who saw him racing grew up seeing him racing in and how he became an icon of Italian cycling because he became not just an icon of Italian cycling he became an Italian icon as such because of who he because of who he was and the, his 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 character do you remember Daniel, when we were in um, in Naples at the Giro last year we we asked uh, one of the local storekeepers if he knew any cyclists and the only name he mentioned was was uh, Marco Pantani and we uh, I... So mm-hmm. typical isn't it yeah, Brian. So yeah.
1: we've we've had that conversation with uh, all sorts of different people at endless times over the last 20 years. But it was
2: I think it was it was it's relevant to mention because I sometimes find it hard not to compare him to Diego Maradona this this strange character this not particularly straightforward person that that somehow had his inner demons ability to to accelerate him into a different level of sports into becoming a mythical mysterious person and both i mean maradona came you know grew to he died at at an old age that pantani but sometimes when you see those people you know we talk about club 27 in 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 rock music that there's a there's a certain deadline for people who burn their candles uh, and in both ends and it it also for me today, it's hard to imagine what what would the old Marco Pantani. What would Pantani at at fifty, even sixty year old um, of age? What, what would he look like, and what would he be doing? There was there was this element to him that was that was the desperate, and that was constantly trying to get away, not just from the peloton, but from his his life conditions or in, his, his inner demons and and whatever. And sometimes I feel like with Italy, it's it's the lack of not having someone who was that fabulous I know that you know Nibali's one of all grand tours and they've had other great bike riders but they haven't really had that icon that is larger than the sport than the sport itself someone that anyone would know even if they didn't know the faintest thing about cycling and I think that's part of the scar that won't heal is because there hasn't been anyone after him uh, certainly not someone as as fabulous and, and spectacular in the way he raced
3: It's not just about winning, is it? It's about the way he rode. It's about his connection with uh, a nation's psyche, really, and and what it meant at the time. I guess uh, the time itself as well. We live in different times now. You know, people are more accessible on on different levels of social media. Back then, it was the man who was plastered all over the papers, the man who was on the telly every day. Um, You know, and if you went to a race and you went to event to event, obviously there just wasn't as much communication. You could see that face and so distinctive he was with the way he looked, the way he rode. I mean, I'm going to do what I do every few years, getting ready for that stage again. I'm going to go back and watch Europa in a, in a, in a couple of months. But it it is funny that his sort of aura is unique to Italy, isn't it? It's that relationship with his nation and with the people because I have to, I sort of have a bit of an intake of breath every time I talk about Pantani on the telly during the Giro, because I want to translate to an international audience exactly what Pantani meant to Italy, because it is important to mention him. But I also get the feeling that a lot of the audience are thinking, oh, what's actually talking about again? Pantani, blah, 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 blah. They want not shut up about him and people who don't well... want to know about him. And I also get that as well. But you know, it, it, it's really important to try and reflect how intrinsically related he is with the race and with the people. And it is something pretty unique that I, I don't think I've seen in any other race or any other situation.
1: Rob, the, the, one of the complications, one of the difficulties about talking about Pantani as well, and I think we've all experienced this, and certainly when you do it in with your sort of journalistic hat on, is, and I, I mentioned this to, I think, Filippo or Stefano off mic, and we did discuss it, <gasps> But um, the, the people tend to fall into two camps and there is a bit of a Berlin Wall in the middle. Um, there are people whose who's love and whose um, sort of veneration of Pantani is completely unconditional and those people will not entertain any of the wider context. You can't even talk about the question marks over his achievements and what was going on in cycling at that time. And then there are other people who refuse to acknowledge the sort of emotional ripples and the emotional resonance of what he did and you know as I said I, I did hesitate today um, I, I didn't know whether we should really discuss Pantani again as we've discussed him endless times over the years but I think Filippo there really touched on why that there is good reason to talk about him and it's simply it's emotions anything that creates this emotional resonance in that many people um, and people who still come to the roadside at the Giro d'Italia it deserves to be investigated I don't think we'll necessarily ever find definitive answers I mean I found myself I've you know written a lot about it over the years talked a lot about it over the years talked about for example uh, you know earlier in the podcast we talked about this sort of second tier of sports or third tier of sports and I've talked in the past a lot about how that is always up for grabs in the Italian sporting kind of panorama football will always be number one and formula formula 1 is just below that but the third position is kind of always up for grabs and it depends on who is successful and who is the sort of national talisman um at the time in the last few weeks in the last couple of weeks we've seen a a new pretender for that position with Yannick Sinner the tennis player that's complicated because there are certain Italians that won't acknowledge him as Italian they think he's he's Austrian they think he's Austrian because he comes from a part of of um Italy where they speak German um however that's another conversation so you know, I, I've always I've sort of looked at you know you look at the way those kind of third tier sports wax and wane, and motorsport in general was pretty weak in Italy in the early nineties, and then it became extremely strong with some very charismatic figures like Valentino uh, Rossi and um, Max Biaggi and various others. Just about the time where Pantani's star started to wane, and those sports took a lot of the public that Pantani had captivated Um, so there's that aspect of it the more sort of kind of a bit of beer mat sort of sociology just looking at what was happening in Italy in the 90s we've talked before on the podcast about how uh, the early 90s probably 1990 the World Cup 1991 it was sort of the high watermark of feel good Italy feeling good about itself it had the fourth biggest economy in the world and in the years thereafter the mid-1990s it was this period of huge upheaval um, the political parties that everyone had recognised had been in power for decades collapsed the political scene became unrecognisable there were bribery scandals um, mafia um, strategy, Terror, yeah terrorism and you ask yourself was Pantani was Pantani somehow something to hold on to was his sort of Pied Piper role accentuated in those years because people felt sort of destabilized by everything that was going on in wider society and then you know you think about the doping question and how it, he was sort of it, 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 he represented he was the last sort of salvo in an age when people didn't really question what they were seeing so when they were watching Pantani it was, there was no question mark in the back of their head certainly not in 98 99 and then after 98 and after Festina all of a sudden those question marks were introduced and they no longer looked at professional cycling in the same way so there are there are an awful lot of factors those are just sort of three or four things that you can you, you could sort of volunteer as explanations for why he was able to mobilize such energy and such emotion um, well, on that daniel at
2: that time one thing I, th- I think is quite interesting you know mentioning that the tour is gonna pass by his his old hometown is, this a, is is there a reconciliation of how, you know, it, this is a very large elephant, elephantino, in the room because of how the um, history has, or history or even ASO, in how they choose to iconify certain writers from their period and, and some that they, they don't. In all fairness, they are quite diff- different characters altogether, but I still find it quite interesting, and I look forward to hearing relevant question being asked to Christian Prudhomme about reconciliating the past and the relevance of a, an, a known doper, you could almost even say without offending anyone. I, and I think it's quite important that because history uh, has a tendency not to be able to rewrite itself. Only our opinions about it can can ultimately change. And I think there's something very uh, Italian about insisting on the legacy of Marco Pantani and the relevance of his him as a character where the the doping element actually doesn't take anything away from the myth of him. Sometimes you could even say it adds something to the mystery. But I think there's something uh, quite interesting in how Italians uh, think about Pantani and how people who look down upon cycling in that period think about Pantani and how the tour now will, will you know at least recognize his relevance uh, in Italian culture, not just in cycling culture, but in Italian culture as such
1: yeah it's really interesting that the choice of the, the tour route and i think on the italian side there was a, a deep desire to honor pantani by going to Cesenatico. i think on the french side there's probably less interest and what you will see i would suggest from aso will be uh, a heavy emphasis on fausto Coppi and gino bartali because the race is going to well it's starting in florence home city of Giro Bartali and it's going into Piemonte, home region of uh, Copy, and probably more of a sheepish emphasis on Pantani would be my yeah, guess. But
2: also if we all know the hypocrisy of that. It's almost like we have to decide which decade doping became something to be frowned upon historically and which it wasn't, you know, I don't, you know, even thinking about the Merck's period and when they were Celebrating him in the town square of Brussels—all these things—it's—it's. It's, uh, I'm not saying it's an easy thing for ASO to navigate in, but it's certainly not a, a moral compass that's all that's always. Um, aligned or calibrated with uh, with strict categories just to put it that way
3: i would say it's impossible for anybody to navigate uh, and, and and come out of it with a sort of aligned balanced thing i think everybody does their best on that or at least like to think so but it is impossible isn't it everyone's own biases and life experiences are going to come into that where they visited who they idolized who they were fans of um but from that point i am surprised actually that aso are going to touched the Cezanatic or region I would have you know when I heard it was starting in Florence I would have sort of bet on it staying towards the sort of west end side main going up through uh, Liguria, things like that and, and not touching, but we all know that in the Giro as well, Emilia Romagna as a government, the regional government has invested really heavily in, in bringing big cycling events and sort of working what's a, a real traditional area of cycling that we don't often talk about. We talk about Lombardy, Venice, Florence and Tuscany don't we? But you know, if you think of cycling's history in Italy and, and its history as a sort of a real working class sport and the factories and things like that, Emilia Romagna historically has, has produced a lot of clubs and certainly the the sort of grassroots as we talked about it with, with British cycling earlier on you know um, grassroots of cycling in Italy a lot in terms of participation come from there don't they
1: just finally chaps I should also um, say remind the listeners that there have been various well when we talk about closure and the, the, the mystery surrounding Pantani's death. There have been various investigations over the years and there is one still going, um, being led by the Procura um, the Rimini. The sort of mood music around that is that it will end much like the previous two have ended. That is unsatisfactorily as far as Pantani's family are concerned and um, certainly Pantani's mother Tonina has, um, well she's um, sort of lobbied hard for uh, deeper more in-depth investigation into certain elements of the case and um, were there people in the room with him when he died and the connection um, to Madonna di Campiglio
2: I suppose as well is, is still up, yes, up in the air yes as well
1: what actually happened in 1999 in the Giro at Madonna di Campiglio, um, there, there's fairly credible evidence about um, unusual betting patterns, um, that the idea that possibly it was in someone's interest for Pantani not to finish the Giro that year. But um, that aspect of the whole story, the lack of closure, I find rather, well, very sad um, because obviously... It is a way for some people, it seems to be a way for some people of holding on to his memory. Um, the longer these investigations keep going and the longer the quest for truth continues. I also think some of it uh, is... In, in um, this, is counter- it keeps him alive in a certain sense. Yeah, but al- some
2: of it is also counterfactual because it's its as if they want to take the the tragedy of Marco Pantani into the hands of someone else. Someone else has to to carry the explanatory uh, force behind uh, the tragedy of Marco Pantani, whereas um, f- f- at least from my perspective, Marco Pantani was was his own tragedy, and there was certain elements built into his personality that 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 wasn't exactly leading to a happy ending. in, in compared to Frank Van der Broeke or or someone else, and and I think the the blaming the tragedy of Marco Pantani on either the m- uh, mafia involved betting uh, corruption or as a, or a, a, a drug scandal leading up to his, his untimely death. I think there's parts of it where I think there's, there's a hesitation to actually take in all the facts about how he led his life and how he was uh, potentially a tragic character uh, waiting you know, an accident waiting to happen. And I think I can, I can certainly see why other people are trying to pull in the other direction, you know blaming someone else for his, his loneliness or the sadness of his of the way he, he finished his life
1: just the last word on that chap. So I'm just going to read a passage or a paragraph from an editorial by our colleague Enzo Vicenati, who's an Italian journalist who knew Pantani very well and he wrote a piece earlier this week talking about the sort of exploitative aspect of the Pantani story. Filippo Cauts in the interview we heard earlier touched on it as well this sort of sense of guilt that no one was there to help Pantani and that he was very much a pawn in a, in a toxic system where Enzo also um, talked about that and drew parallels with sort of how exposed. Uh, young riders are today in a sport that's well it's sort of amping up the pressure on them on their sort of nervous systems in a way and the pressure to be uh, ever better prepared and ever more professional um, Enzo wrote in the end before Pogacar tries to emulate Pantani's Giro tour double and let's see how close he gets and to push the memory of the Italian even further away Not much has really changed. The bikes are different. The calendar is different, like nutrition and training methods. Now altitude training camps have become duriger and everything's computed and quantified. But when you drill down, they're all still young men and women, all of them with a story to write, crushed under the weight of the big team's gigantesque budgets. These powerful organisations have their claws embedded in the rider's tender flesh. We just need to recognise that and then decide whether we want to carry on like this. Marco Pantani, who died on the 14th of February 2004. Rob, also next week, we have got a lot of racing. Just tell us briefly Oh, Women's up?
3: World Tour resumes with the UAE Tour starting on the 8th. The same day, we've got men's racing in Provence and a, an upgraded race in Turkey, in Antalya, in the south as well. That's now a 2.1. A racing in Oman with a new Muscat Classic. I think it's the second year of that, followed by the Tour of Oman. The second year tour of Figuera, Champions Classic in Portugal. That's where Remco Evenepoel is going to start his season, followed by the Volta Algarve on the 14th, the same day that the Vuelta Ciclista Andalucia, Ruta del Sol, starts as well. Before that as well in Spain, we've got Murcia, Almeria and the gravelly race in Jaen.
1: So lots coming up in the next week. Did you mention France? Yes, Provence. Provence. uh, Provence where our good friend Lucky Larry Warbass, uh, Decathlon ag 2 La Mondiale's Larry Warbass will be making his season's debut and chaps what a coincidence Larry will be on the podcast next week to talk about his season's debut in Provence um, so until then um, I'm going to say thanks to Rob and thanks to Brian we'll be welcoming both of them back very soon but yes as I said until then it's good for me ciao
4: The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney.